Let me begin by saying what a pleasure it is to be here worshiping with you today. As many of you may know, for the first uh, year that Derek was your pastor, I had the privilege of coming to worship here at Fairmount and getting to know many of you. So it is great to be back. Derek and I feel so privileged to have the chance to serve two churches in the Cleveland area that have both done so much to share the gospel with this community and with the world. And we look forward to finding ways that our congregations can collaborate and work together in our ministry and mission. In the meantime, I'm very glad to be with you today. And I'm glad that you're here today. There are plenty of other things you could be doing as I'm sure you know, it's a glorious day. Summer has finally come to Northeast Ohio. So you could be hiking or biking, sailing, maybe just reading outside somewhere. You could be studying, playing, or hearing your own pastor preach down the hill in University Circle. <laughs> but you're here. Don't get me wrong, I'm really very glad that you're here, but the fact that my list only scratches the surface of all the other things you could be doing on a Sunday morning begs the question, why? Why have you chosen to spend your Sunday here at church? Some months ago, Pope Francis addressed this question. People who go to church, he said, don't do it because they want to appear better than others, but because they recognize they need to be accepted and regenerated by the mercy of God. He goes on, if each of us does not feel in need of God's mercy, if we don't feel like sinners, it would be better not to go. We go because we are sinners and we want to receive Jesus promise. Now, I'm not sure how many of us woke up this morning and thought, I'm really feeling like a sinner today. I think I'll go to church. <laughs> it's probably closer to the truth that we woke up thinking about that first sip of coffee or wishing we could sleep a little longer. But theologically speaking, Pope Francis is right. We come to worship to honor God with our presence and our time and our attention but we also come hoping against hope that we will be saved. Most of us here are Presbyterians. We may not be entirely comfortable with the language of salvation, but salvation is what the Pope is talking about when he says we go to church because we are sinners who want to receive Christ's promise. What is that promise? Salvation. And what is salvation? Well, my friend and colleague Mark Ramsey recently offered an excellent explanation. Salvation, Mark said, is about the past and it's about the future. Salvation is the transformation of the past from a burden to a gift, from grief and regret to wisdom and joy. And salvation is the transformation of the future from a place of anxiety, fear, and uncertainty to a time of hope and promise. 
When we talk about the salvation of the past, we call it forgiveness of sins. When we talk about salvation of the future, we call it eternal life. Whether we want to admit it or not, we come to church hoping against hope for the gift of salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life. If only that salvation was a one-time, discrete event, and we could point to the exact moment that it happened. This is the moment my past was transformed. This is the moment my future became bright. This is the moment that everything changed. We love that kind of clarity. We long for easy answers, for clear definitions. And we'd really like to know ahead of time exactly how much things are going to cost us, how much time, how much energy. And the tasks of our life of faith are no different. Salvation, this transformation of our past and our future, sounds great. But what is it going to cost? If someone offends me, Peter asks Jesus, exactly how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? Peter's looking for a good number. Not too low, but not too high either. Seven seems about right. Plus, it has the advantage of being a holy number. God created the world in seven days, after all. But Jesus isn't looking for a perfect number when it comes to forgiveness. Jesus is looking at our hearts. Not seven times, Jesus says. Then he gives a number which is usually translated as 77, but which could also be 70 times 7 or 490. I'm not sure the exact number matters, because the point Jesus is making is that you can't put a number to forgiveness. It takes what it takes. And what forgiveness takes from us is a lot. In the age of social media and 24-7 information, there have been many public incidents of wrongdoing and forgiveness. One of them in the last year was between Ray and Janae Rice. He is the former star running back of the Baltimore Ravens who lost his job because of an incident with his wife that was caught on tape. A website released a version of a three-minute video in which Ray beats Janae unconscious and then drags her out of an elevator. A couple of days after this went public, Janae posted the following on Instagram. No one knows the pain the media has caused my family. To make us relive a moment in our lives that we regret every day is a horrible thing. If your intentions were to hurt us, embarrass us, make us feel alone, take all happiness away, you've succeeded. One reporter paraphrased her argument as, Why is the howl from the internet mob causing the league to take away my husband's livelihood when I have forgiven him? Janae claimed that she had forgiven Ray whom she married after the incident in the video. But there were a lot of people questioning whether that was really true. And this understandably made her angry. Because forgiveness is hard. It's hard enough to prove to ourselves 
that we have forgiven someone who has offended us. But it's even harder to prove to others. Forgiveness costs us. Forgiveness costs us, which is probably why we so often use financial metaphors to talk about it. In this parable and in many others, Jesus talks about forgiveness in the language of money, specifically in terms of debt. Now, typically, Jesus uses parables in ways that are confusing, as if he intentionally wants to confound his listeners, to turn their assumptions on their heads, to help people see things in a whole new way. But the parable we heard today is decidedly straightforward. Maybe that's because Jesus knows that forgiveness is anything but straightforward. It's a thing that resists simple formulas. It even resists complicated formulas. Of all the elements of a life of faith, forgiveness might just be the one that resists and defies all the answers and good intentions and efforts we throw at it. So in response to Peter's question that tries to pin forgiveness down to a number, Jesus tells this story of a slave who owes a debt to a king, a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, it, it might be lost on us today, but those who first heard this story would probably have burst out laughing at the size of the slave's debt. One talent back then was the equivalent of 15 years of wages for the average worker. 10,000 talents was the equivalent of 150,000 years of wages. In other words, this slave owed the king a gazillion dollars, a debt too big to ever pay off. When the slave left the king, not having been told that he could have a little more time to come up with the money, not having been told that he'd only have to pay half the debt or a quarter of it, but having been completely released from the entire ridiculously huge debt, he ran into a fellow slave who owed him the equivalent of 100 days wages. And when the man couldn't pay up right then and there, he had him thrown into jail. What does this tell us about the condition of that first man's heart? In her poem, Watching You Hold Your Hatred, Alice Walker wryly comments on the burden we bear when we are unable to forgive. Watching you hold your hatred for such a long time, I wonder, isn't it slippery? Might you not someday drop it on yourself? I wonder, where does it sleep, if ever? And where do you deposit it while you feed your children? or sit in the lap of one who cherishes you. There is no graceful way to carry hatred. While hidden, it is everywhere. Forgiveness costs us. But not forgiving, holding on to hatred, nursing that grudge, that costs us too perhaps more than forgiveness ever could. We come to church, we come to God, longing for salvation, longing for our past to be transformed from burden to gift, 
longing for our future to be transformed from a place of fear to a place of hope. We come wanting and needing to be saved. And the cost of that salvation is that we must receive God's forgiveness for ourselves and extend that forgiveness to others. Jesus knows just how hard that is. He also knows that the only way to do it is to begin, knowing you will have to do it over and over and over again, just as God does for us. The Raymond Carver story, A Small Good Thing, is about a mother and a father whose son, Scotty, is hit by a car while walking to school on his birthday. After three days in the hospital, during which his parents barely leave his side, Scotty dies. During those three days, while their son is alive but still uh, but unconscious, every time one of the parents returns home, even for a few moments, they receive strange phone calls. Sometimes the voice on the other end of the phone says nothing, but other times there's just the sound of breathing and then a hang-up, or there's something truly disturbing said, like, have you forgotten about Scotty? Or, you're Scotty, I got him ready for you, did you forget him? At first, Scotty's parents were confused and a little afraid, but then they got angry. Who was torturing them like this? Finally, after a call came just before midnight on the day that Scotty died, the mother realized who it was, the baker from whom she had ordered Scotty's birthday cake, which she was supposed to have picked up on Monday morning. Filled with righteous anger, the parents drove to the bakery in the middle of the night and pounded on the door until the baker answered. At first, he tried to get rid of them, but then he recognized the mother. Oh, you decided you want your cake, he said. She stood there burning with anger. The baker was angry, too, angry that he had to work so hard at all hours of the day and night just to make ends meet, angry that people would order something and then fail to pick it up and pay for it. Then Scotty's parents told the baker what had happened that Scotty had been hit by a car, that they'd been waiting with him until he died, that now he was dead. At first, the baker couldn't even speak. Then he put down his rolling pin, took off his apron, and cleared off a small table. Please sit down, he said. He said how very sorry he was about their son. Please, he said. Let me ask if you can find it in your hearts. To forgive me. Scotty's parents took off their coats and sat down at the table and let the baker feed them. For three days, they had barely eaten. Now they watched the baker pull cinnamon rolls right out of the oven and put them on the table. They ate the warm rolls and drank the coffee he gave them and listened to what the baker had to say. They listened as he talked about his loneliness and doubt, about what it had been like to be childless all these years. They watched as he broke open a loaf of dark, rich bread and let them smell and taste it. In the last paragraph of the story, Carver writes, they listened to him, they ate what they could, they swallowed the dark 
bread. They talked on into the early morning, the high, pale cast of light in the windows, and they did not think of leaving. People blunder through life. They do and say things that hurt us, sometimes terribly and irrevocably. Do we forgive them? Sometimes. Is it hard? Always. We blunder through life, too. We do things and say things that hurt people, sometimes terribly and irrevocably. Do they forgive us? Sometimes. Does God forgive us? Always. Always. Amen.